This is an ABC podcast. In a pandemic, how do we balance the rights of an individual with those of the broader community? Welcome to The Law Report. Damien Carrick with you. In our fight against COVID-19, should employers be able to make vaccinations mandatory for their workers? In an Australia first, food processing company SPC has announced that from November, it will require all employees to be vaccinated. What about vaccine passports? Should cinemas, restaurants and sports grounds be able to refuse entry to the unvaccinated? You might imagine that civil libertarians would find these ideas troubling, even alarming. In fact, the President of the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, Pauline Wright, is broadly supportive of these measures. Pauline Wright, before we talk about mandatory jabs and vaccine passports, Sydney's in lockdown right now. What sorts of COVID-19 or lockdown-related complaints is the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties receiving right now? The main ones we're receiving, Damien, are from people who live in southwestern Sydney. Now, southwestern Sydney has a very high migrant and CALD population, a lower socioeconomic background in general, and that the hospitals and health facilities there are, have been chronically underfunded despite the high population. So people in southwestern Sydney feel like they've been targeted because the latest outbreak in Sydney has its greatest numbers in southwestern Sydney. And so we're getting complaints from the people saying, look, this feels like discrimination to us. It feels like they're targeting us and the treatment that we've received because of COVID-19 has been much harsher than the treatment that they observed when the latest um, crisis emerged in the beachside suburbs of Sydney. So they're feeling like it's blatant discrimination and racism. And blatant racism and discrimination, what, in terms of the imposition of these tighter restrictions than in other places or in the actual implementation of, of what these tighter restrictions are? There are tighter restrictions and the implementation. So there are certain suburbs in southwestern Sydney that have had specific harsher lockdown requirements imposed and the government will say, look, that's because there's more disease there and we're getting higher numbers of cases and people are dying. But the people there are feeling like they're being cordoned off and that the eastern suburbs didn't get that treatment. So they're feeling that COVID-19 is being used, in the, in the words of one person, as a Trojan horse for contravening human rights. And are you receiving videos of interactions between, say, police and locals? What, yes. what form are these complaints taking? Well, some of them are coming in by email. Others are sending us videos of police coming to people's homes and approaching people in the streets with a pretty heavy-handed approach. Not only are the police in higher numbers in the western suburbs of Sydney, I think an extra 100 at last count had been deployed, but also the Australian Defence Force has come in. So we're getting videos of defence helicopters landing in sports fields. We're getting videos of police really who should be making sure that violence doesn't take place. We're seeing 
real escalations of violence in interactions with members of the public where it's really unnecessary. And it seems to me that police training should equip them to be able to de-escalate situations, not see these sorts of confrontations develop into physical violence. So is the Council for Civil Liberties in dialogue with police and local authorities about these issues? When you receive one of these videos, how do you deal with these issues? Look, we're really concerned about some of the videos we've received. So we've asked the police commissioner for a meeting and we're hoping that that will take place soon. We've written to the police commissioner expressing our concerns and we're hoping that we'll have a meeting with the police commissioner in the coming weeks. These are probably very complex interactions and it's impossible in this forum to forensically analyse the videos and what they show and what they don't show. But but in a nutshell, what are your concerns about potentially problems with the way that police are interacting with locals in this area? We're seeing police approaching people in a fairly aggressive way. Well, this is what the videos show. And members of the public are filming the police as they approach another individual. And the police's attention then turns from the person of interest to the person taking the video and really escalating the conflict by telling the person to stop videoing and, and advising them that they're obstructing justice or obstructing the police in the execution of their duties when, in fact, they're just video recording what's going on. And that's, I think, inappropriate. It seems to me that people should be able to videotape police interactions with another member of the public if they feel that the police interaction is overly violent or aggressive. It's well within people's rights to record that because that can be used in evidence if they're is ultimately a charge against the person of interest. So we're concerned that that, you know, aggressive approach is taken against third-party observers. And you are in dialogue with New South Wales Police on yes. these matters. And we're, we're hopeful that that will result in a meeting because these are pretty serious issues in a time where everybody is feeling very stressed because of COVID-19, the impact of the lockdowns, particularly in areas of lower socioeconomic resources, where a lockdown and an inability to work is a real threat to people. They can't put food on the table. They can't pay their electricity bills if they're not working. So people's nerves are frayed <laughs> and they're on edge. And where they feel that there is a disproportionate crack down on them as opposed to other sectors of the community, those fractures within society are really at risk of, of separating really, really dramatically. And we're, we're seeing those existing fault lines actually being further fractured by the heavy-handed response, I think. And that's what we've got to avoid at all costs. Pauline Wright, mandatory workplace vaccinations Last week, in an Australia first, SPC, the food processing company based in Shepparton, Victoria, said it wants all its 450 employees to be vaccinated by November. Is this within the law? Can an employer issue that kind of directive? They can. They are taking a risk in doing that. 
when they give a directive like that, it's got to be under law a lawful and reasonable instruction. So they are taking a risk in that if a particular employee doesn't want to have a vaccination, then they might challenge it in court. And it's going to depend on whether the court finds it to be reasonable under the circumstances. I mean, the employer would be saying, well, look, I've got to balance my obligation to the workplace to to have a safe workplace against the right of an employee to not undergo a medical procedure in order to keep their job. And where would you sit in terms of uh, that that balancing act coming at this from a civil rights perspective? Well, I, I don't agree with mandatory vaccination. I think that it should be the right of a person to make their own decision about whether or not to be vaccinated. And the Council for Civil Liberties has that view. But at the same time, you have to accept that if you won't have a vaccination for whatever reason, that that may have consequences in terms of what you can and can't do in times of a deadly pandemic. And of course, we have already some areas where vaccines are are required, healthcare and the home care, aged care and... And quarantine workers. And quarantine workers and the health system. Scott Morrison has ruled out indemnifying employers or using federal public health orders to compel workers to get vaccinated, saying that that would amount to mandatory vaccination program by stealth. Are you uh, in accordance with that view? Look, I I do agree with that under the circumstances. I, I don't think that a blanket mandatory requirement for vaccination is appropriate because it is going to depend on the particular workplace. Some workplaces will need their workers to be vaccinated, I think. It would be reasonable to require vaccination. But isn't that the problem with the status quo? Because you've got legal experts and employer groups who say we need the government to step in because arguments about reasonableness can be a legal minefield and we don't want to create a legal picnic for lawyers at a time when it's urgent that we have clarity about what steps employers can and can't take and let them carry those out or roll them out very quickly. There is the possibility that there will be test cases where people will challenge those decisions. But if employers are basing it on medical evidence, it will be a brave employer who's going to challenge that. Because if they lose, they'll face a very hefty costs order. And in, in circumstances where you are working in close proximity with others on in a workplace, And the medical evidence is that it's reasonable for the employer to require you to be vaccinated or prove your status as being free of COVID-19. It'd be a brave employer who's going to challenge that, I would have thought. In the urgent situation we find ourselves in, is this the time for these sorts of legal uh, machinations and steps to be playing out in our courts? It's probably not. I mean, ideally, there would be a way of, of doing it without mandating vaccines. But I just think it's a very uncomfortable thing for government to be putting a blanket mandatory requirement for people to be vaccinated. I just think that that's going a little step too far. In New South Wales, what's happened recently is that construction workers from the um, hotspots in New South Wales have been added to the list of authorised workers, which allows them to work on unoccupied construction sites that are working at 50% 
capacity if they meet vaccination conditions. So that's a step short of requiring mandatory vaccination. It's actually saying to people, okay, well, if you are vaccinated, then you're free to do these things. And that might sound like a subtle difference, but that's the kind of guidance that governments can appropriately give. Moving on to vaccine passports, uh, restricting access to pubs, restaurants, cinemas only to those who are vaccinated. Uh, Last week, uh, New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian said she's not ruling anything in or out, but says her government may be more comfortable about allowing certain services to reopen by the end of August if both providers and customers are vaccinated. What's your response? Well, look, people have got valid reasons for saying no to being vaccinated. And if they've got a genuine reason why they can't be vaccinated, for instance, they might be immunocompromised, then they shouldn't be forced to be vaccinated. If they can prove that they're COVID-free from a recent test that shows negative, then they should be treated the same as somebody who's been vaccinated. So the Council for Civil Liberties doesn't support blanket requirement for vaccine passports. But having said that, they will be a very useful tool for people to be able to move more freely in the community. So if you've been vaccinated and you can prove your vaccination or you can prove that you are COVID-free, then you should be able to move freely within the community. And whether that's going to a nightclub or whether it's going to your place of employment, whether it's going to the theatre or a sporting event, then being able to prove either of those two things should allow you to move freely again. So from a rights perspective, a civil rights perspective, better to allow some people, vaccinated people, to enjoy certain freedoms of movement, certain liberties, than for nobody to enjoy them in a COVID-19 world. Yes, I mean, absolutely right. I mean, the fewer the restrictions on our liberties, the better. But of course, it's predicated on there being enough vaccinations available for everyone. And there's been some concerns that some sectors of society haven't been able to access vaccinations as freely as others. So we go back to the southwestern suburbs of Sydney. There's been complaints there that there haven't there hasn't been a big vaccination hub set up there. And so they feel that they haven't had the opportunity to be vaccinated. And so we, again, don't want to see vaccine passports being handed out on a postcode basis. We don't want to see those, um, I suppose, disadvantaged parts of society being denied the vaccine passport because they haven't been able to get a vaccination in the first place. That's right. Look, but Pauline Wright, coming full circle, has the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties received criticism for its, its broad support for lockdowns, vaccine passports and mandatory vaccinations? Look, we have had some pushback from certain um, people in the community who perhaps think that we should be standing up for rights no matter what. But that's not what the Council for Civil Liberties believes. What we believe is that always rights and liberties of one person have to be balanced against the rights and liberties of another person. So one person's rights might infringe another person's rights. So it's always 
an act of balancing those competing rights. And as far as we're concerned, the rights of most of us to get back to life as normal is really important. Pauline Wright, one final question. What's the Council for Civil Liberties' view about anti-lockdown demonstrations? We support, we absolutely support people's right to free assembly and to protest peacefully. Even if you're being told it is a law that you need to stay at home, you're saying you should be able to get out there and demonstrate if you do it, if you safe socially distance and take other COVID safe measures, even though by law you should be in your home. Well, if there is a lockdown in process, you obviously do face the risk if you go out and assemble peacefully that you may be offending some other law, such as the lockdowns that are lawfully imposed on us. You may find that you are prosecuted for breaching those laws if you do. Your right to peaceful assembly is there, but if you're breaching another law by going up, Side, going beyond 10 kilometres from your home or five kilometres, depending on where you live, then you may find yourself in breach of those. But what we urge is for a safe way of demonstrating during a time of health emergency. And that may well be doing it by vehicle convoy, as we saw, I think it was last weekend or the weekend before in Sydney. That is a way. The other way to demonstrate at the moment safely is online. So while, yes, you do have that right in Australia and it's a, one of the most fundamental rights in a democracy is to be able to protest peacefully, for goodness sake, people, do it safely because you don't want to be the cause of a further extension of the lockdowns and you don't want to be causing more deaths. We've seen numerous deaths in recent weeks in New South Wales, and that's just been devastating to hear about every night on the news. Nobody wants to be the cause of that. Pauline Wright, President of the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties, thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. That's a pleasure. Thank you, Damien. I'm Damien Carrick and you're listening to The Law Report on Radio National or available as a podcast from all the usual platforms. The Victorian Ombudsman, Deborah Glass, has just released a report detailing human rights breaches in the state over the past year. Most breaches weren't malicious. Rather, they were often caused by public sector workers trying to ensure compliance with COVID-19 public health orders. Deborah Glass... Tell me about the case of the woman who had just flown into Melbourne Airport. This was a complaint from a woman who had to go into hotel quarantine. She'd come from New South Wales. She'd waited for hours at the airport for the transfer to hotel quarantine and she needed to go to the bathroom. The Department of Health staff who were enforcing this told her she had to wait until she got to the hotel and in the end she was forced to urinate in a water bottle on the bus, which was a, a really uh, appalling breach of her dignity. Now, I think the the point there is that her, her movements were being reasonably restricted. You know, she had to go into hotel quarantine, but that shouldn't be at the expense of her dignity. And, and that's where the balance failed in this case. There was this, uh, you know, reasonable restriction on, on her movement for a very important public health reason. Perhaps there'd been an unexpected delay, but there appeared to have been no plan in place 
to allow the woman access to what she needed. And, and this is what we see time and time again with these human rights cases. They're, they're not, uh, by and large, deliberate human rights uh, breaches, somebody trying to interfere with somebody's rights. They're, on the whole, busy, harried public servants who are simply not taking into account the people who lie at the heart of their decision-making. Also, I'm imagining the official who's on the ground, meaning who can, can and can't get off the bus, if there's no protocol in place, they're not even equipped to really do much about it at that point in time. So so it's, it's not just about what the rules are, it's about the processes in place to deal with problems as they arise. At the heart of it, dealing with with matters in a sort of human rights sensitive way is no more nor less than putting the the person at the heart of the decision making. If people are going to wait for hours at an airport, they're going to have to use the facilities at some point. So when you're planning for that, make sure you have a COVID safe way of allowing people to use the bathroom. And of course, this official front and centre of their thinking is, I don't want to be responsible for a COVID outbreak. And exactly. And you know that person's going, well, that unfortunately woman can't be allowed to go wandering around the terminal looking for a bathroom and we haven't planned otherwise. It's difficult for, for everyone. Well, well, what it illustrates is that balancing act. You know, the balancing act in favour of limiting her movement, requiring hotel quarantine, not unreasonable. But the balancing act about having somebody wait for hours in an airport without access to facilities that is unreasonable. I suppose in in the COVID crisis, you know, in Victoria last year, and, and of course now in New South Wales, we're all on a learning curve, right? We're all doing as best we can. And we and we see that the, the kinds of complaints we're getting that that are COVID related, by and large, are about very busy people just not considering the impact of their decisions. And when we bring it to their attention, they're very responsive. We had the case, for example, of a woman in a wheelchair in a COVID testing queue who, again, needed to use the facilities, no wheelchair accessible bathrooms. And when she came, you know, she had to go home. And when she came back, she was told to go to the back of the queue. This was a drive-through testing facility. Indeed. So, again, when we brought that to the attention of the department, they immediately recognised that they'd got that wrong. And not only did they apologise to the woman involved, but they sent out immediately instructions to all their other sites to make sure that didn't happen again. I, I really don't think these kinds of situations are deliberate. They're just some, you know, people are not thinking about the consequences of some of the the actions they take. Now, this time last year in Melbourne, 3,000 residents of a number of high-rise public housing towers were locked down. There were a series of complaints made but by the residents there. What conclusion did you come to about those complaints? Well, we concluded in that case that the the immediate lockdown of those public housing towers, locking them down without any warning, any notice, so they were unable to, you know, to you know to get essential food and medication and supplies, was a breach of their human rights. The balancing act in that case failed. Should the government apologise? I recommend that the government apologise. They haven't done so. I'm still disappointed a year on that they haven't done so because it would have gone a long way to acknowledging the harm and distress that people felt about the way they'd been treated. I mean, people felt they'd been discriminated against by the state. There was also an interesting case in your report about uh, somebody who experienced a delay in the issuing of a COVID-19 clearance certificate. So if you like, they were stuck in isolation for much longer than they should have been. Were, were there many complaints like that? We, we've certainly had quite a few complaints like that and not surprising. You know, this is a very busy, overworked department that is overwhelmed with requests. But 
again, the point here about the balancing act, it's reasonable to expect that, you know, that people are going to, to need to be in isolation if they're, if they're testing positive. But there are also consequences for them when they can get no response from a department. I mean, what this man was telling us was that he was waiting 16 days. He was getting no response from the department. It was affecting his mental health. He needed to go back to work uh, and not getting a response was simply not good enough. He was in isolation or in quarantine for 16 days when he needn't have been. Well, he was in isolation when he did need to be for, you know, for much of that time. But he was then having trouble, you know, after 16 days, he was having trouble getting through to the department to find out when he was going to get a clearance, when he could leave the house. He'd been symptom-free for 10 days. Sometimes it's not just a decision which causes a human rights breach. It's the lack of a decision. It could be absolutely. Not getting a decision is in itself can indeed be a failing. And we've seen this again, you know, this is not deliberate. These are, there are a lot of overworked public servants clearing vast backlogs of requests for exemption. But at the heart of every one of those requests is a person who has rights. And the agencies involved need to balance those rights. And sometimes they get it wrong. The report's full of really interesting cases. It's food for thought. It calls on us all to be mindful about the processes that we have in place. But what do you want government and all of us, I suppose, to take away from this report? Human rights is a balancing act. They can't be ignored in a pandemic or indeed under any circumstances. But they also help considering human rights, balancing human rights also makes public servants make better decisions. They will help to drive good decision-making. They put people at the heart of government, and and that's where they ought to be. And how do we go about ensuring that as a matter of practicality when you've got a a dynamic, urgent situation, as we had in in Victoria last year, and and, uh, how our uh, family and friends and loved ones in New South Wales are currently enduring? What do you do in the heat of the moment? You, You keep human rights at the forefront of your thinking. When you're thinking about locking down a public housing tower, for example, and the public health advice does not say, as it did not in this case, that it should be done without notice, then think about what are the implications of this decision? If I lock down these towers without notice, there are going to be people without food, without medication, without essential supplies, who in this case only saw this when they saw police surrounding the blocks, uh, a traumatic experience for many people who were escaping war-torn countries. So if you think about the consequences of this, that will then help the, the decision-making. Yes, I need to lock down these towers. No, I don't have to do it immediately. If I give people a few hours' notice, that will actually alleviate the, you know, much of the, the concerns that, that were subsequently raised. So that's the rule in that case. But what's the general rule? Um, I mean, is there a kind of a guiding principle, not just for that situation, but for all situations? Do, do less harm? I mean, I'm wondering where do we find ourselves in these dynamic, urgent situations? Weigh it up. It's always a balancing act. It, it is a question of reasonableness. You know, is my decision reasonable? I'm limiting somebody's rights and freedoms. Is that reasonable? Is there a way of doing it that respects people's human rights? But if you don't know the the consequences of not taking that step or not not taking a hard decision, and they could be disastrous, uh, what do you do? It, 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 It comes down to reasonableness. We are all human. We are all human. We, When we make decisions, we make them on the best available information. 
And nobody is going to get criticised for making decisions that take into account what they know at the time. But the kinds of cases we're talking about here were completely foreseeable. If you're going to leave somebody for hours at an airport, they're going to need to use the bathroom. These are foreseeable. So think about a COVID-safe way of, of allowing that access. It's no more nor less than thinking about this decision I, I make is going to have consequences. What might they be? Deborah Glass, a Victorian ombudsman, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. My pleasure. That's The Law Report for this week. A big thanks to producer Anita Barrow and to sound engineer Matthew Sigley. Don't forget The Law Report is available from all your favourite podcast platforms. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.